Welcome to the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast, your headquarters for building a six-figure-plus e-commerce business. I'm your host, e-commerce entrepreneur and Jeff Bezos wannabe, Andrew Derry. Hey guys, it's Andrew here, and welcome to another episode of the E-Commerce Fuel Podcast. A few weeks back on the hiring episode with Bill D'Alessandro, I mentioned I'm going to be hiring a content and community manager for E-Commerce Fuel, and excited to announce that position is officially open. So I'm hiring someone to help out with editing and producing top-notch content for the blog and for the podcast, uh, as well as someone who's a community manager to help welcome new members, uh, to moderate uh, interactions, uh, to facilitate interactions between a private forum members and also help with producing content for the private community as well. You'll also have a chance, or at least whoever ends up in the position will have a chance to really see inside my existing e-commerce business and help out with that as well to a limited degree, but it's definitely going to be primarily on e-commerce fuel related content and community position. So a few of the benefits, uh, it's a full, this is a full-time salaried position looking for someone to come on uh, you know, as a full-time, long-term team member to help me grow, uh, grow the brand here. Uh, it's 100% location independent, as well as you know, flexibility with hours. It doesn't have to be just a nine to five. So the biggest thing I'm looking for is I'm looking for someone who's an outstanding, top-notch writer. That's my biggest requirement. Uh, in terms of you know things that are really helpful as well, uh, obviously knowledge and experience with e-commerce is going to be a you know a big checkbox uh, in your favor if you've got that as well, uh, and a track record of independently getting things done uh, on time. You know this position is going to have a lot of autonomy, a lot of responsibility, and uh, just being able to get things done at a quality level and on time is going to be really important. So if that sounds like you, please head on over to ecommercefuel.com forward slash jobs, uh, and you can learn more about the position uh, as well as apply for the position there. Again, that's ecommercefuel.com forward slash J-O-B-S, and we'll link up to that in the show notes as well. Today, I've got my buddy Drew Sanaki from drewsanaki.com on the show. Drew was a previous guest, oh, maybe a month or two ago, probably two months ago, and he came on to talk about selling his dropshipping company, Design Public, a couple years ago specifically wanted to have Drew on to kind of have a real open and honest discussion about dropshipping. You know, a lot of people have opinions about it. A lot of really good ones, maybe overly good, a lot of really negative ones, oftentimes very negative, maybe unjustifiably so. I wanted to just have a real open discussion about should you be doing dropshipping? Is it a good way to do e-commerce? You know, is it really scammy? How difficult is it? Uh, especially in today's e-commerce environment. And Drew and myself, that's kind of both of what we have done historically. And, and given where we are today, would we do it again? So I wanted to be real open and honest with that. We get into a really interesting discussion. So stick around for that. But first, as always, got to do a first sale shout out. And today's shout out is going out to Tony Short from StudioAlt.co. And Tony writes in and says, You inspired me to launch a Shopify store that focuses on selling non-digital toolkits to the digital tech and startup community. I'm pretty sure he's selling things like notebooks, Sharpies, stencils, planning supplies for programmers and designers, things like that. Today on January 1st, I received my first sale. This was a couple of weeks ago, obviously. And picture the scene this morning when having finally shaken the bad head <laughs> from the New Year's Eve celebrations that I finally managed my first sale. I'm sure you will agree not a bad way to start the new year. No, uh, not a bad way at all. Tony, congratulations, man. That's fantastic. Thrilled to see you getting your store up and really specializing 
you know, kind of taking a, uh, maybe products that uh, aren't necessarily totally unique or even that niche down, but applying it to a very unique demographic and appealing to their needs. Cool way to do that. So best of luck with the store in the future and hope it's a, a good 2014 for you. It's been off obviously to a, to a good start. Quick update on the uh, trollingmotors.net sale before we dive into the discussion. It finally actually officially closed last Friday, so about a week ago today in terms of the publishing date for this podcast. So, you know, it's great. It's been a fantastic experience. It was great to get it closed and kind of in the books officially. And, you know, it's I made a number of pretty good-sized mistakes in the process, a couple that even potentially threatened to derail the deal at some point. We never got super serious, but they were they were good-sized road bumps. So I'll be chatting about those in a future episode and looking forward to hopefully bringing the buyer on to have a discussion about the uh, the purchase, which I think would be a really interesting perspective. Rarely do you get to hear from the, the buyer and the seller at, at one time. So I hope to bring him on and then also chat with a potentially an experienced broker who's done a lot of these deals and and to get his insights on, you know, the structure. It was obviously a unique structure and uh, see what his thoughts were on what I did well, potentially what I did that, that could have hurt the process and get uh, a different perspective on that. So, so hoping to bring that to you in the next month or so. So let's go ahead and dive into today's discussion with Drew Sanaki from DrewSanaki.com. And today I've got my friend and the founder of designpublic.com, Drew Sanaki, uh, a previous guest of the podcast here with me to talk about uh, drop shipping and specifically an open discussion about drop shipping. So Drew, welcome. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be here. It's good to be back. <laughs> good to have you. I've been looking forward to this discussion and this kind of a topic because we're both drop shipping guys, as we'll get into. I don't know about you, but I feel like dropshipping sometimes gets kind of a bad name. You know, it gets this reputation as kind of as kind of e-commerce, but not really. Or it's just a huge scam, or nobody can make uh, dropshipping work, which I, in some senses is totally unmerited. But in in other senses, you know, we were down in in Orlando and had a chance to meet for the first time, which was really cool at Ezra's event, and started talking about it. And there are some real problems with it. You know, there are some real logistical problems with it. There are problems with how far you can grow a business with it, especially in the way that kind of the e-commerce environment is developing. The market's changing, and so there are some real concerns with it. So I wanted to have like kind of an open and honest discussion about this and from, from two guys that have thought a lot about it and done it. So hopefully be able to give people a perspective that's, that's not too biased, you know, hopefully fluff-free for the most part. So should be Fun. And I have, to, I have to mention, too, we're both on microphones here, but you are holding your, your Rode Podcaster with one hand. Is that right? <laughs> I am, yes. <laughs> you can tell. <laughs> so, so I was going to add, I, I asked you before, are you sure you're going to be able to make it through 45 minutes of doing this? Yeah, is it go, elevated? Go to, is it, go to Amazon and look up how much a Rode Podcaster weighs. It's a heavy. They are. Yeah. They're beefy. Is this your workout thing as opposed to like buying a stand? You just alternate with arms for if your, it just, your phone calls? If, the, if I go silent like halfway through the podcast, you know that <laughs> I've just fallen over. I can't hold it up anymore. So I think most people know kind of my background in, in drop shipping. That's all I've done primarily, you know, with right channel radios, with trolling motors, been doing it for about six years. And for people who haven't, who maybe didn't catch the episode with you, which we'll link up to in the show notes, can you give just kind of a real high level kind of background on your history with drop shipping? Sure. I felt like I kind of was a dropshipping pioneer. We started my retailer in 2003, and back then the, the term wasn't even sort of a common term. We had to explain what it was to the vendors who we worked with. We would go up to them at trade fairs and, and say, hey, would you ship to the customer for us? And 
we'll take the order, we'll send it to you, you ship direct to the customer, and then that's kind of how we want to do business. And and they got it, and that was we we started at the time we we didn't know it was called drop shipping, but we started that in 2003 and sort of grew until we sold my retailer a couple of years ago, about two years ago now. Drop shipped the whole time, never took inventory. We loved the model initially because it allowed us to get started with very little capital. A couple hundred dollars, I think, maybe a thousand dollars of work went into the website and we were in business. And so I think eventually it became more and more challenging to drop ship. And I think we're going to get into that in this conversation. But that's that's my history with job drop shipping. You know, people are always saying drop shipping is dying or dead or it's run its course. When did you start to hear that? I mean, obviously you got started in 2002, 2003 when it was barely, it wasn't even really known as a fulfillment model. And so when did you start hearing people saying that? And was it back 2005 or six or when did that kind of come into the, the e-commerce mentality? I think it was an, it was always an operational model. It just wasn't really well known in the internet circles. And it wasn't certainly picked up by internet entrepreneurs who wanted to make a lot of money overnight. That's when dropshipping sort of became a big, a big thing, right? Like a, a well-known term that everybody wanted a lifestyle business where they dropshipped. And I think, well, it just got increasingly harder probably after 2005 or six, I think 2006 maybe. And then 2007, you know, we personally, like our, our company really had a, a great year in 2007. Then we hit the recession in 2008. And I think it's hard to tell, was it dropshipping becoming harder and harder or was it the recession? But for either reason, things got worse and just, I would say, harder in 2007 for us. It's tough too, because you've got this challenge of trying to figure out, okay, how much of the difficulty of dropshipping, how much of that is recession. Yeah, how much is recession? How much is more competition? Exactly. How much is, is dropshipping becoming more competitive? And how much is just e-commerce getting more competitive as well? Because you make a pretty strong argument that any kind of, even if you're stocking your own stuff, unless you have a very proprietary product, if you're selling anything that's got a barcode on it, it's going to be more competitive as time goes on. Did your dropship businesses go along a kind of a, a curve where it, they got better and then they, they got more competitive? It's hard to say. I, I started in 2008, right when the recession was kicking off. I figured that'd be a good time to start a business. And so I think that what I saw in my market was you always see diminishing levels of return. You know, the, the first couple of years are always usually the fastest and the most growth, at least in my experience, with kind of small niche e-commerce stores. And then they would start to plateau off a little bit. One thing I did notice was that year over year, for years that I didn't make a whole lot of substantial changes on maybe pricing or design, I'd look at my conversion rates year over year and they would usually drop. You know, so maybe you know, December over December from 2009 to 2010 or 2010 to 2011, they'd be down by 20, 30%. And, you know, I was a little bit alarming. I think part of that was due to, you know, maybe not staying up to date with design or being on top of pricing. But I'm sure some of that would be, was a little bit more competitive pressures, more people buying on sites like Amazon. And again, of course, dropship market. So there's, there's just more competition. So I do see that. I do see a little bit of some wear on that in terms of conversion erosion. So yeah, it's, it's just so hard to say what, what's accounting for it. When you start seeing your conversion rates drop like that, by nature, you start thinking, what did I do to my site to screw up my conversion rate? Like, how did we change the UI? But if there's nothing you can point to, then I would think it's more competition. You know, and maybe you see your, at the same time, you see your AdWords 
uh, keywords getting more expensive and maybe certain paid channels getting more expensive. It just means there are more players out there. So did you see a lot of people coming in drop shipping products? Because I've seen, in my niches, I haven't seen a whole lot of new competitors come in because I think in the last three or four years, there's already a decent number now. I don't know, maybe starting to talk about it a little more publicly, maybe people <laughs> start jumping into the, the niche more. But, you know, one of the reasons I picked it is, is a little more confusing. you got to have a decent amount of knowledge and expertise with it to be able to add value and make it viable. But I haven't seen a whole lot of quality increased competition. I've seen, I guess I could say I've seen a lot of people just with very basic websites sprouting up and kind of slapping stuff on a a real kind of ghetto page and trying to make something happen. As time went on, did you see a lot more viable competitors start to take advantage of the dropshipping opportunities? Yes. Unlike your niche, I think ours, which was modern design, is more universal. I think any you know, mom and pop can sort of talk to it. All you have to do is love decorating and love design. You know, it just became easier and easier to set up a store and to drop ship. And I think you had two things going on. You had the e-commerce, like the front end systems were becoming more democratized, right? They were becoming cheaper and cheaper to set up a, a Yahoo store or a Magento store. You could set one up for a couple hundred bucks. Whereas you know, five years prior to that, maybe $10,000 in coding, right? So that was getting cheaper. And then on the operational side, the vendors, many of whom we, we had to train to dropship or we had to sort of explain how to do it and how we're going to, you know, pass invoices back and forth and pay each other. Once they learned, they wanted to do it through everybody because they learned that this was sort of a good thing for them. So we just had – I remember in the early days, you would search for a product of ours like a blue dot strut table – you know, a dining table, maybe there'd be one or two search results on Google for e-commerce companies like be us, DWR, maybe one more. And five years in, it was just like three or four pages of results. So yeah, long story short, it just became like the barriers to entry went lower and lower. And because of that, you had so many more, both mama and pops and viable competitors entering the market. And that's one thing I've noticed, the difference between my two stores, Right Channel Radios, which is the radio site, and then trollingmotors.net, is all of this is open financials on the blog uh, in terms of the sale of the site, but you know, it does 600K plus in 2013, and the margins are you know 11% or so, 12%, really small. And that one has been more of a challenge to, to make profitable and to grow just because there are a few accessories, but it's not as accessory rich. There's a much higher price point on the motors that are sold. And so people are much more price conscious. They shop around a lot more. And I imagine that's probably something, because I'm imagining the furniture you sold, you might sell a few add-ons with it, but primarily you're selling one expensive item to somebody or one or two expensive items that once people know what they want, there's not a whole lot of really help that they need to, to select it or to buy it. They have it and then they can purchase it. And so I think that's tough if you're going to try to sell more expensive items as possible, but it's it's a lot more challenging in drop shipping as opposed to selling smaller items, which is one of the reasons why I always advocate lots of accessories and really complicated niches because otherwise you just get crushed by people coming in and, and offering it a lower price. So... Are the brands of the products on your sites as well-known? Are there established trolling motor brands? There are, yeah. There's primarily two. That people search for? Yep. Okay. That was the case in modern design. It's like you have this huge long tail of branded search terms, right? That people come into our sites on the brand pages. They don't come in through the homepage. They search for Blue Dot. They search for Dwell Studio. Those are two big design brands. They land on their brand pages, and then they start comparing prices. We always told our team, like, you've, the customer's got five tabs open on their browser, and they're looking at the same product on five different tabs. Like, and I'm sure that's 
I, I don't know if that happened in your niche or not. I couldn't name off the top of my head any trolling motor brands, but maybe that, I mean, would you say it's the same in your, in your case? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and pricing dynamics are so interesting because on the, on the trolling motor site, thankfully they have the manufacturers are fairly strict about maintaining minimum, you know, advertised pricing levels, minimum levels they can sell at. And so it's funny because we did two pricing experiments on the right channel side. We went and raised prices uh, on our top 25 products by about 10% or so. And you know, increase the profits by you know thirty three percent, forty percent, almost overnight. Just because a lot of the products we sold weren't super well known. A lot of accessories, and then also anytime you're buying a basket of five or six or seven items that are smaller price, it's much. There's a lot of transactional costs and time involved in shopping that around. Right? It's just a lot easier to hit the add to cart button. These all work together because their website said it did. I'm going to buy from here. And so raising prices on that site worked well. But with the trolling motor site, when we tried to raise prices, even like five percent. Sales just plummeted because in the market, there was just everybody sold at this price and they were high ticket items, you know? And so we'd get a lot of people being like, Hey, I love your site. It's great. But why are you, I mean, everyone else is at one price. Why are you more expensive? And so, yeah, people definitely were, were comparison shopping. So how did you get, or did you have really, did you have minimum advertised pricing from the manufacturer? Or how did you, were you just cutting pricing or how did you get around that? You know, there were a lot of things that to try to, to get around the issue there of increased competition. But the manufacturers did enforce MSRP. And if they didn't, there were retailers yelling at them like that day, you know, to get other retailers in line. So I would say that that's definitely a consideration if you want to get into drop shipping is, is do you have vendors who will enforce an MSRP if there are going to be other retailers carrying the same product? Sounds like we both benefited from that. Or maybe it's a, a dual-edged sword, right? Like you're guaranteed that you're not going to be competing on price if that's the case. And then you have to figure out other ways to compete. Like if, incidentally, I don't even know if that's legal for the manufacturers to do that, but they do. The way I understand this, and I, and I could be wrong on this, so nobody take this to the bank, but the way I understand it is it's not legal for manufacturers to say you can only sell at this price, but it is legal for manufacturers to decide who they distribute their product to. Right and, right. and so, yeah, so I believe that's how they get around it. So like for our trolling motor site, there's been a couple of times where we accidentally, with pricing updates or things changed, we had prices that were below that level on our site. And our wholesaler got a hold of us and said, hey, your pricing's too low. Make sure you fix it. If you don't, you can't order from us anymore. So, so I guess if you're in that kind of industry, you're drop shipping, number one, and number two, your vendors or your manufacturers all enforce an MSRP, then you you say, okay, then can I outcompete my competitors on, on marketing and on adding services or adding a better product accessories that go along with the current products? Like, how, how do you compete on the front end? Because you're guaranteeing that your prices are set for a certain number of your products. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But that's where you want to be, right? <laughs> the only way you can make money with drop shipping. You can't compete on price. You're going to be just annihilated by someone who's a really smart sixth grader who's selling at you know a twenty-five cent profit margin on a hundred-dollar item out of his basement. So by the time we sold our our business, there were literally companies that you know you hadn't heard like they were there one day gone the next. Like you talk to the vendors and they'd say. You know, I don't even know. I'm got, I just got order from this new retailer, and I've never heard. We didn't even sign a contract with this guy. They're just sending us orders like that. That would happen all the time. These manufacturers were dealing with sometimes two or three hundred different retailers selling their product. So you got to compete on the front end on on something other than price. Are there things you would have done differently, looking back on your business in terms of 
making the dropshipping model more viable, either in you know problems that you had that you didn't necessarily address very well, or things that you wish you would have done in retrospect to, uh, to have made it more profitable or more successful. I mean, and it was very successful. Obviously, you had a great exit, but just kind of in the vein of just further improvement for people who might be thinking about getting into the market. When you mentioned that we were going to talk about dropshipping, I did write down a couple different ways that I would sort of hack it. And we tried a lot of these different things. And I would say we didn't really master any one in particular, but if you put them all together, maybe you can carve out a decent niche, right? And one thing we tried was volume pricing. So if everybody's selling the same product at the same price, could you go up to your vendors and say, if we sell X of these per month, will you give us better wholesale price? We found some success with that. In that sort of builds in a little bit of a pricing advantage for you. So eventually, if you outmarket your competitors, you are getting preferential pricing. Volume discounts is one. Exclusive product is another. If you can somehow talk your, your vendors into giving you some sort of exclusive product. In our niche, it was fairly common with colorways. Like it'd be very easy for a manufacturer to produce the same table in a different color. So you would say, I want I want to sell this table in green. And they said, okay, like we've got a relationship with you. We'll do that. All you have to do is prepay for 100 tables or something. And, you know, a lot of times that worked out. You have to be in business for a while to be able to guarantee that you'll sell a certain number of things like 100 green tables, right? To take, that, take on that kind of risk. I mean, a lot of times the vendor won't insist that you inventory that product. They'll just, they'll keep it in your colorway at their warehouse, but you sort of have to prepay to buy that. Signing exclusives, volume discounts, and then proprietary access to customers, I think, is a big deal. A company like Fab, when they started out, they were 100% drop shipping, selling the same products every other design retailer was. But you know, how were they able to get a couple hundred million in sales? I think it's because they had several million people on their mailing list, right? So you and I can be drop shipping the same product, but if I have a mailing list that is a million people large, then I still win, whether we're getting the same pricing or not on the back end. I thought those were three ways that we sort of tried to, to outcompete drop shipping the same product. That's a really good idea on the proprietary product for a manufacturer. I'm thinking about things on my radio business I could go to suppliers and do already. <laughs> As you were talking, I was struggling to listen because like, oh, there's like three things I could do to, to get a, you know, that's a great idea. I, I wish I had that idea myself, but it was the manufacturers who were offering it up. You know, they would say, they would come to us all the time and say, hey, do you want us to make this table in blue. Can I do a Drew Sanaki bobblehead antenna? (laughs) Will will you sign off on that? I think they're used to doing that because they, you know, if you look back in the history of manufacturing, like they would produce a certain radio and sell, you know, sell one through Staples and sell one to, I don't know, Radio Shack. And they they put different model numbers on it, different SKUs, and they maybe put a a dial somewhere different, call it something different. So I, I think you can use that to your advantage and try to, you know, try to develop some exclusive or proprietary product. Yeah, no, that's a really good idea. And you mentioned on pricing in terms of as you, you know, in any business, as you scale up and you start doing more volume, you have more leverage. And I don't know what your experience was on this, but we've gone through with some of our suppliers and, and definitely have, I need to do this more than I do, but uh, at multiple points in the past history, I've gone back and said, okay, here's our top 50 products. 
you know, what's your best price you can do on this? And in essence, pit the suppliers rather against each other and say, well, you know, you're offering this radio for 30. Our other supplier can do 29. Can you come down a little bit? And I think it's healthy to do that to keep suppliers honest and, and to make sure you're getting you know a good value and that you're being rewarded for the amount of volume you're pushing through them if you're increasing in size. But it's tough because you got to be careful because you've also, like in any relationship, even a, a business one like that, you know, there's, you can push so far until there's a point where the incremental savings you get from saving 50 cents per radio are not worth what it costs in terms of the relationship bank account that you have with them. And you may save a little bit of money, but it may hurt, you know, kind of the goodwill you have in the relationship. And so that's always been interesting in terms of trying to see where you, where you create a win-win situation. Did you, is that something that you struggled with when you were running your company? You know, we weren't really able to because it was sort of one product, one manufacturer. Oh, okay. So we couldn't compare apples to apples across manufacturers. They certainly got competitive with each other. Like a furniture manufacturer knew that their main competitor was another brand and we could carry both brands. We could say like, okay, do you want homepage placement or do you want marketing placement in our newsletters? And if we're going to give you homepage placement, we'd like you to give us a little bit of a kickback on pricing. You know, and if you don't do it, we'll, take, we'll ask this other brand to do it. So that, that did work. I'm guessing there, that was one manufacturer. You probably had you know dozens, if not hundreds. And so you could push a little harder because if that relationship went by the wayside, it'd be rough, but it wouldn't represent 50% of your, your sourcing. You could position it as a good thing for them. Like, hey, we've come up with this new marketing program. And as part of it, we're going to get you homepage placement. Like, here's the statistics that show that this many people see our homepage every week and we have this conversion rate on the homepage. We'll put you on the homepage for these two weeks and... All we ask is that you give us another 5% on the wholesale cost. They kind of liked that, in my experience, or like in our company. They liked us. It showed we were thinking outside the box. You put yourself in the shoes of a manufacturer. They probably get a call every other week from a dropship retailer who doesn't really know their product and doesn't really care about the industry and just is trying to make a buck and says, I'm gonna, I want to dropship your product through my site. I think that sort of extending that offer shows that you're really like you're thinking about their business, you're thinking about your business. And in my experience, like the manufacturers really loved that relationship with a retailer. One of our our private forum members, David Corner of QIherbs.com, yeah, we were talking about dropshipping in the forums and he had a, a comment that I thought was was really insightful. I wanted to read it. He said the prediction that dropshipping is dead or will be has been thrown around by various authors for some time now. And when reading the stated reasons why I think they have, I simply have a hard time buying it. Dropshipping is a distribution model, as is warehousing, or wholesaling for that matter, and has little to do with the added value at the point of a retail transaction. The need to differentiate lies at the retail end of the distribution chain and not at the prior wholesale distribution step. And so, and I think he's right. You, you kind of touched on that earlier, Drew, that it really it's all about how are you going to compete apart from price. And, and dropshipping is just the way you get the product to the customer. It really doesn't have anything to do with the way you differentiate yourself. And so obviously, you know, you can make dropshipping work. It's worked for, for you. It's working for me now, even today in 2013. Even the, the Right Channel Radio site, it has margins that are better than some people I know that are manufacturing products and bringing a lot of stuff over. And so it can work. I think, I think the big challenge with dropshipping is just you've got to be so much more careful about how you pick a niche, picking a niche that allows you to be able to provide value. And then also you've got to be able to be a really good marketer. And so those are the two things I think that, that really are ultimately the big problems. And so, so those things, I mean, kind of the big question, I think this whole episode leads up to is if you were launching another e-commerce venture today, would you drop ship? Would you use that model or would you do something else? 
it really just depends. I, I hate to give you that answer, but it's, there's no like yes or no to that question because like you said, it's a method. It's a tool. You know, it's a means to an end. It's not the end in itself. And the end is creating a viable business, right? And dropshipping could be one of the things you use to get there. Like anything else, it has advantages and disadvantages. I think when you're creating a good business, you want to be thinking about things like Porter's Five Forces, you know, like are there barriers to entry in this niche? The fact is with dropshipping, like the barriers to entry are lower, right? So it doesn't mean you need to not use it. I think you just think about the business first. Like, can I create a differentiated business model, differentiate the product or the brand experience or the marketing, something on on the front end that touches the customer? And then if dropshipping helps me get there, great. You know, or if it reduces my costs or brings better selection, those are all good things. So I would not say I would never dropship again. And the other thing I think it does give you is if you do have the best business idea in the world, but it requires, say it requires inventorying your own product, I would still encourage you to consider drop shipping as a preliminary step. The software world now is sort of enamored with this idea of a minimum viable product, right? Like you, you do the minimum thing necessary to learn about your market and to learn if you have product market fit, which is a good fit between your product and and people who want to buy it. And I think the same thing applies to e-commerce. You want to achieve that learning as cheaply and quickly as you can. And dropshipping would help you get there before a lot of other things. If you're thinking of selling something like, I don't know, like widgets, right? You're thinking of selling widgets. You don't know if there's a market for them. Don't go out and fill a warehouse with them or design your own and, and build your own. Maybe Maybe set up a, a really quick WordPress site with a checkout and dropship some product from widget manufacturers that already will dropship for you. Learn a little bit about the market before you invest in filling your warehouse. What do you think about that? No, I think those are awesome points. That's one thing. I think you're dead on. I mean, being able to dropship just, it's, you can test the market. And both of my stores I've been pretty wrong about who my core customer was right out of the gates. And if I'd gone out and bought a bunch of inventory or developed my own product before knowing who they were and what they needed, it would have been a much more expensive process. Personally, me looking forward to dropshipping, it's, I think the big thing for me that makes dropshipping a little bit more difficult going forward is that it takes longer to scale up given the smaller margins. You've got to put a lot more time and energy into finding the perfect niche or a niche that, that allows you to add value in a way other than price. Because if you can create your own proprietary product, there's a couple of strategies that you mentioned that, again, I'm going to get off our discussion here and maybe make some phone calls or something. But if you have your own product, it's so much easier to be able to control distribution, to have higher margins, to be able to make it exactly how you want. You're controlling the fulfillment side of it. And so in terms of the unboxing and the delivery experience, that's something you can control more. I think it's something where you got to invest more up front, you're not quite as hamstrung in what direction you can go with a company. And so the next business I build on most likely will try to build it around a core unique product, one really good high quality or a very small line of high quality products. And then as I grow from there, you mentioned being able to offer additional products with dropshipping. And that, I think, I mean, that's a perfect, that's an amazing way to leverage the model is have a core product that you're really well known for. And then if you want to you know, increase your offering without having to go out and buy all that stuff, just drop ship, which is something I've definitely considered doing. But I think my next venture looking forward would just probably be something more proprietary just for all those reasons. So I agree. I, I think 10 years ago, I was 
when I was taking drop shipping to the bank, I was just thinking, man, I just need more niches. All I'm going to do is, you know, supplements. All right, I'm going to drop ship all supplements through a supplement store. And, you know, lighting, I'm going to drop ship all lighting from a lighting in a lighting store. And I just think that Amazon, Wayfair, like whoever is already is already there. They will be soon enough. And I think now that you see the brands that are sort of coming along with more sustainable models do have one or two core products that they can control the brand experience of. And they may supplement that with some dropship products. Great article by Andy Dunn, Get One Thing Right. I think that's the gist of the title. We'll link over to it in the show notes. Talks about if you're going to create a brand, try to create it with one outstanding product and then you can expand from there because if you if you don't if you try to go the other way and you try to sell everything it's going to be a lot harder to get traction early on so do you think anyone should be starting a drop shipping business right now like do you think like obviously where we are it's something that we're maybe favoring more of a proprietary product but do you think there's still a market for people who are in e-commerce uh, maybe beginners or people who are just getting their feet wet do you think it's still a viable approach i would just put it in a box i would think okay this is not my raison d'etre you know, like it's not my reason for existing I'm existing to build a business, not to be a dropshipper. Don't be so wedded to it that you don't let it go if it's not working for you. It's still a great way to get started with little to no cash up front. But I think like you, maybe I would think of it more in terms of a phase. Like if I want to end up selling you know, the best lighting product in the world, maybe I dropship just to test the market for a while. And once I learn a little bit more about the market, I, I really go live with phase two, which is selling my own proprietary product. I will say that the people who are starting a lot more dropshippers now sort of successfully are content sites. I'm seeing more and more, maybe it's because I'm here in New York, but more and more big media companies. Dwell Magazine, for example, just launched a, a store and it's 100% dropship, which, which makes sense because they're not retailers, right? They've got an audience and they want to start monetizing that audience and they are dropshipping, you know, like a lot of the bigger blogs who have audiences and, and design and, and content and fashion, like they're starting to, to dropship product. I'm getting a lot of calls from companies like that who, who really are looking to get into e-commerce and, you know, they don't want to have a warehouse. They don't want to think about how to package something. Especially if you're getting started. It sounds like you got some bigger names that are using in established businesses, but I also think it's it's a good way to go if you're just beginning and getting your feet wet. I loved it as a way, well, I'm still doing it, but I loved it early on because it was it allows you to get going without having a whole lot of risk, paralyzing risk on the inventory side. Or if you can find a great niche, if you've got that proprietary selection, if you can you know contract with a manufacturing, get them to drop ship for you. Dave Huckabee will link over to the interview uh, with Dave Huckabee. He does a lot of drop shipping from manufacturers and, and does well because he's dealing with very you know products that require a lot of specialization and you know that aren't really you know popular at least in consumer realms and so uh, and if you can find a great niche with good distribution for it by all means dropshipping is a great viable model you know it, it definitely works but it drives me crazy the, the extreme mentality is dropshipping is either the worst business model in the world it's a total scam only fly by night people use it or it's the way to you know in six months create a you know, $400,000 income living on the beach. It's neither of those. <laughs> I would say it's probably getting harder to find those niches, but they still exist. So does that mean you should do dropshipping or not? I don't know. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, it is probably getting more and more people are probably flushing those out. Well, Drew, great discussion. I love batting this around with you. It's, it's a lot of fun. For those of you who may not be familiar with Drew, again, check out his interview. We'll link over to it in the show notes here. And this is going to be ecommercefuel.com forward slash dropshipping dash talk. 
is going to be the URL for this one. Wow, we, we get our own custom URL. We do. You're, yeah, you're, you're in a, you hit the high time here. <laughs> <laughs> so if you've got questions for Drew or myself, come on over to the comments. We'll do our best to, to engage with you there and talk with you there. We'll link over to Drew's initial interview where he talks about the rise, the fall, the coming out of the ashes of designpublic.com and then, and then the sale of his uh, dropshipping website. And then finally, I, I can't not mention drewsnocky.com where you've been writing tons of really good keeping me honest over here. I look over to look at your stuff and I'm like, Drew, tone it down a little bit. You know, you're raising the bar here. I'll see what I can do to to lower the bar. Uh, Yeah, thank you. I'd appreciate that. Um, (laughs) DrewSanaki.com. Make sure to check it out if if you uh, enjoy really informative, engaging, and entertaining e-commerce articles. So, Drew, thanks so much for being on. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Andrew, this was a great topic. I enjoyed talking about it. All right, talk to you soon. Always a pleasure. That's going to do it for this week. But if you're interested in building your own successful e-commerce store, make sure to download my free ebook on niche selection and getting started at ecommercefuel.com forward slash ebook. And if you've been around in the e-commerce community for a while, maybe you're a professional uh, helping e-commerce store owners, maybe you've got your own store, it's been running for a while and you've got some established revenue, you'll want to look into the e-commerce fuel private form. It's a vetted, closed community reserved exclusively for store owners and professionals. And you can learn more about that community and apply for membership at ecommercefuel.com. This week, we're going to be giving away some stuff from declarationclothing.com, owned by Ken LaBlanchio and Joe Calapaki. A really cool company. These guys are private forum members here at Ecommerce Fuel. And it was a company uh, founded in 2009 in Boston at college. Ken and Joe sounds like they were roommates in college. And it's clothing inspired by the unmistakable bravado of the American forefathers. At least so it says on their about us page. And just really cool stuff. You know, this is going to be a little more American-centric for those international listeners. I apologize. But just really interesting, unique clothing. You know, there's a million t-shirt companies out there. But what Ken and Joe did was really focused in on the revolutionary period, the American history uh, story. And so they've got cool join or die cartoon shirts kind of from the Revolutionary War when you've got that. The picture of the snake in 13 parts, uh, whiskey rebellion shirts, uh, really patriotic World War I shirts, Lewis and Clark, all sorts of neat Americana stuff that's going to just make history buffs go crazy, American history buffs. Uh, and they got a great blog. I mean, they've got a great example of how to blog well in a way that you can focus on content, but also match it up with the interests of your customers. They do a really nice job with that. So awesome, awesome company. We're going to be giving away one of their t-shirts to someone who leaves a review for the e-commerce fuel podcast this next week. So all you have to do is head over to iTunes, leave a review for the podcast. Could be great, could be terrible. Uh, any review counts, uh, but just make sure to put your name and you know either your full name ideally, or if you're not comfortable with that, put your first name and last initial or your first name and a company you're associated with so that we can announce you, identify you uniquely, and hopefully track down some contact information for you just because iTunes doesn't give us your email. And we'll go ahead and give away a choice of your patriotic American shirt next week uh, to one person who leaves a review. And again, that Dodo case, there was really only three or four reviews that week. And so if you're thinking, "Eh, I don't know if I'm going to do it, you've got a decent chance, at least historically in the last couple of weeks in terms of how many people have been leaving reviews. So score one of those. Love to hear your feedback and would appreciate the support as well. And again, if you want to check out that store, it's declarationclothing.com. Thanks so much for listening and looking forward to seeing you again next Friday.